Understandably, nations have poured billions into shoring up health services, but the recovery, now that lockdowns are being lifted, needs to take into consideration our other global emergency, climate change. So there's a big opportunity to retrofit buildings and homes across this country, to clean up our transportation sector with electric vehicles, to clean up our electricity system with wind and solar. In the near term, we have to think of not only what are our goals, but how do we address the barriers to make sure we're making equitable investments so that we can actually reach those goals together. has come to an end and a presidential term is winding down. These past few years have been a mixed bag for climate action. There have been policy setbacks and economic shocks that have slowed the transition to a low-carbon economy. And yet, the global clean energy sector has continued to grow while fossil fuel companies have been dealt a major blow. In the U.S., Congress passed and President Trump signed the most significant package of clean energy policies in a decade. And incoming President Joe Biden has pledged to make clean energy jobs and environmental protection a cornerstone of his economic plans. U.S. emissions declined to their lowest level in three decades this year. But these reductions came at a huge cost as the economy shut down amid the coronavirus pandemic. The challenge now is to make these emissions cuts sustainable while getting millions of Americans back to work. We hear from two wind energy technicians training the next generation of wind workers, and we dig into the latest modeling and analysis of what it will take to put the U.S. on track to deep decarbonization and economic growth. All that on this episode of Political Climate, an energy and environmental podcast presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And this is the final episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series, supported by the think tank Third Way. One of our goals with this series, as well as the monthly series we published earlier in the year called Path to Zero, was to hear from local policymakers, grassroots organizers, and small business owners who are leading the clean energy transition or dealing with the negative consequences of inaction. And in that vein, I speak to two wind energy technicians in the latter half of this show. Mike Gengler in Iowa, and Jay Johnson in North Dakota. We talk about how the renewable energy industry has affected their rural communities, growth opportunities, and the messages they want to send to political leaders. But first, I speak to Lindsay Walter, Senior Policy Advisor for Third Way's Climate and Energy Program, about a massive new initiative outlining the policy and technology pathways for the U.S. to reach net zero emissions by 2050 and to do that in an equitable and affordable way. 
Before I turn to that conversation, a quick reminder that you can subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you take a moment to leave a review, I promise I will be forever grateful to you. Also, a link to all the episodes in the monthly Relief Rescue Rebuild series, as well as our earlier Path to Zero series, are included in this podcast's show notes. Past guests in these episodes include former Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu, Professors Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes, Tom Steyer, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, and James Chen, who leads policy at the high-profile electric vehicle startup Rivian. We also heard from union leaders, advocates for energy and environmental justice, and clean energy entrepreneurs struggling to survive amid the economic slowdown. This content is evergreen, so I hope you go back and check out any episodes in this series that you may have missed. And I hope that they inform your thinking as we embark on this new year. But for now, let's really get into this episode. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Walter. So we are coming to the end of a very tumultuous year, which has threatened lives and livelihoods. But there have been some positive developments amid all this. So wind and solar have seen record years despite the pandemic. And we just saw Congress pass and President Trump sign into law one of the most comprehensive pieces of energy legislation in a decade as part of a $2.3 trillion government spending and coronavirus stimulus bill. The bill includes provisions that will help renewables, energy storage, the electric grid, nuclear power, carbon management, and energy efficiency at a scale we haven't seen in many years. But Lindsay, I'm excited to have you on because we know that there's still a long way for the U.S. to go before it will achieve net zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. And at the same time, millions of Americans remain unemployed. So I want to delve into your research that informs this entire discussion. But before we do that, at a high level, could you break down the task that lays before us in meeting the United States intertwined economic and environmental goals? Like, is the country on the right track right now? Does the latest bill put the country on the right track? Will the government have to spend significantly more? Effectively, what is the scope of the action that you and Third Way believe is necessary for the government to take in the weeks and months ahead? We have a lot of challenges to deal with, Julia, on both the economic and climate front. As you mentioned, the United States remains in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And by sheer numbers, more Americans are unemployed right now than at any time on record, the worst we've seen since the 1930s. And it's not like the growing threat of climate change has gone away just because we're dealing with these other issues. The reduction in emissions this year from stalled economic activity is temporary. And if we simply regrow the same economy, emissions will ramp right back up along with it. So as we're thinking about how to recover, we should also be thinking about how we produce and consume energy going forward to shockproof our society and economy against the reality of climate change. How we choose to rebuild will determine not only the speed and scale of our economic recovery, but also our ability to reach net zero emissions by mid-century, if not sooner. As far as the scale of action goes, as you mentioned, we've made some progress, especially with the recent $2.3 trillion spending and coronavirus stimulus bill, which includes some energy provisions. But we're looking at spending at least an additional $2 trillion over the next decade to put the U.S. on the path to net zero. And these top line numbers can seem like a lot, but this is actually a similar amount of investment to what our country already spends on energy today, around 5% of GDP. 
this transition is affordable. It's more a question of what are we investing in? And this is not the time to be pulling back on investments in the middle of a recession. Even moderates in Congress who are typically concerned about deficits agree and are advocating for more investments in clean energy innovation and infrastructure. Mm, Yeah, the fact that we're at a point in time when the moderate position, mostly among Democrats, but still the moderate position there is net zero by 2050, it just shows how much the dialogue has evolved in recent years. And of course, the energy measures that passed in the recent spending bill had bipartisan support. So again, it's just a reminder that we are in a moment where there is more collaboration and more coordination on where things need to go than than there has been in the past. But of course, the path ahead is still very rocky. So I know that you have done some research on what that path could look like. Uh, in January, you're expected to launch, Third Way is expected to launch, an initiative on different policy and technology pathways for the U.S. to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So lay it out for us. What does this initiative include and uh, what were some of your initial findings? Yeah, so Decarb America is a joint research initiative between Third Way, Cleaner Task Force, and the Bipartisan Policy Center, intended to help empower policymakers with the information and tools they'll need to design effective climate policies. We wanted to answer questions around how the world's largest economy can reach net zero emissions in just three decades. What technologies do we need and what supportive infrastructure must we build and where? And what are the economic and job opportunities across the country in a new clean energy economy? To answer these questions, we commissioned Evolved Energy Research to use their cutting edge modeling platform to analyze different policy and technology pathways to net zero. So to start, we modeled eight different scenarios for decarbonizing the US. We have scenarios looking at how close a package of commonly discussed climate policies can get us to zero by 50. Scenarios explaining what happens if we face challenges citing renewable energy or fail to electrify transportation, industry, and buildings fast enough. We have a scenario investigating the impact of more energy efficiency and distributed solar and batteries on the grid, and a scenario where we do not allow any fossil fuel resources at all by 2050. The point of analyzing all these possible pathways to net zero is not to pick our favorite, but rather to explore what the technological and deployment challenges are that policymakers need to account for. Because at the end of the day, there are many ways that we could choose to decarbonize our economy, and it's down to policymakers to decide what pathway we take. Yeah, well, understanding that the research isn't public yet and we're getting a sneak peek, um, what would be one of the findings that you'd want to highlight that you think was particularly interesting. Uh, You mentioned commonly discussed policies. Maybe in that scenario, does that get us most of the way there? Do you have any hints you can share? Yeah. So in our scenario about commonly discussed climate policies, we explored a package of sector-specific policies, so including a clean energy standard, a zero-emission vehicle mandate, uh, efficiency for industry and for buildings, and a, a whole list, including various performance standards and incentives for things like carbon capture. And you know, it gets us to about 70% emissions reductions from where we're at. And that's not all the way to net zero. So, you know, one big finding when we're looking at our, our research is understanding where we still have some policy and technology gaps that the kind of commonly discussed policies that we're all, you know, chatting about today don't quite get all the way there. Interesting. Okay. So, 
Another thing I understand about this research is that it dovetails or aligns with some new research out of Princeton. They recently released their Net Zero America project, which looked at pathways for the U.S. to reach net zero emissions. So how does your work align with theirs or build on it? So the Princeton analysis really does set the bar for zero by 50 studies and comes from a respected academic institution. Great team of researchers, including Jesse Jenkins, Eric Larson, and Chris Gregg. And their analysis confirmed that decarbonizing our economy is affordable. And they outlined five different feasible pathways to net zero, along with the infrastructure needs and some other impacts. So some very impressive work. Third way, Clean Air Task Force and the Bipartisan Policy Center, the three partners of the Decarb America Research Initiative, are all based in Washington, D.C., and we work in the policy space. So we wanted to build on this research by analyzing actual policy pathways that could put the U.S. on track to zero by 50. We actually use the same modeling platform as Princeton, but we build on it with our own technology assumptions and scenarios that explore different questions. So we explore how close a package of popular clean energy policies that I just talked about can get us to net zero and analyze what additional technologies and policies are needed. And we also conduct our own state-level assessment of the infrastructure and job impacts of reaching zero by 50. So I'm excited to see a growing body of research on how the U.S. can decarbonize. And with a Biden administration that actually wants to make science-based decisions, our work can play a huge role in informing policymakers. We present our findings in a way that is intended to be accessible to policymakers, to congressional staff, journalists, people who influence the policy discussion. That way people can really dive in and explore our results with our interactive map series showing the clean energy technologies and infrastructure by state that we need to get to zero by 50 and our key takeaway reports highlighting main findings. And this will all be on our website when we launch in mid-January. State-by-state analysis, that's pretty interesting because so much actually happens at the state level, even though, you know, the federal policy landscape tends to dominate the news cycle. Um, But yeah, states have a, a huge role to play in this. So I am curious myself to see what you guys found there. On that front, I understand one of the findings is that the mid-continent of the United States has an outsized role to play here. So could you touch on that and and what you found? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in the fossil fuel economy, there's a lot of opportunity primarily for states with oil and gas resources. But in a clean energy economy, all states can take advantage of a diversity of clean energy resources to create thriving industries. So when looking at our interactive map series, and seeing where the build-out of these different clean energy industries and infrastructure are likely to be. It's clear that while there are opportunities in every region, the mid-continent is particularly well-positioned to capitalize on a diverse set of clean energy resources. So this includes high-quality onshore wind and offshore wind in the Great Lakes, which can be used to produce hydrogen, natural gas with carbon capture, which could also be used to produce hydrogen, and uh, abundant agricultural resources to use as biomass feedstocks for zero carbon fuels. So I think when we talk about climate change, folks tend to focus on the coast, but a lot of our research indicates that the mid-continent will really be the engine of the new clean energy economy. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so as part of this series, Relief, Rescue, Rebuild, that political climate has produced with support from Third Way, we really tried to hear from people in the industry, hear from people on the ground, including grassroots activists working on environmental justice issues to people in the clean energy industry. And as people will hear shortly in this episode, we are going to hear from two people in the wind industry in Iowa and North Dakota. And the takeaway there is just that they don't have enough training. They don't have enough funding. There is interest and acceptance and excitement around the opportunities to grow jobs in these new uh, new clean energy and low carbon industries. But ultimately, someone has to do the work of setting up a school, doing the recruiting and doing the teaching in these fairly remote places. So do you have any insight on how we connect the dots between what's potentially possible in terms of job creation in the mid-continent, say, and what it will really take to create the jobs that people say will come along with the clean energy revolution? Mm-hmm. And these sort of case studies, especially looking at the development of the wind industry, are really important to take from great lessons learned. We know that clean energy jobs created will far outstrip fossil fuel jobs. Uh, This part of our analysis isn't yet complete, but we'll have state level results showing how the workforce changes in a net zero economy. But we're not just concerned with how many jobs are created, but are those jobs being created in locations where there could be potential job loss? And what is the quality of those jobs? We know that renewable industries have historically lower rates of unionization. And Third Way wants to see union jobs become the norm in clean energy industries. This is all part of, as you said, ensuring a fair and equitable clean energy transition. So while we don't have our jobs numbers yet, our infrastructure results give us a pretty good idea of where opportunities are across the U.S. and in which industries. One thing that stood out to me was that Many of the same states that produce our fossil energy become significant contributors of non-fossil energy. So, for example, many states with abundant oil and gas resources are also prime locations for onshore wind, which can then be used to produce thriving hydrogen industries. And it's not like all fossil fuel jobs are going to evaporate into thin air. In most scenarios, we still see the use of natural gas uh, using carbon capture and storage, especially as a resource for hard to decarbonize sectors like industry, where we don't have other clean alternatives. This means we're not looking at losing every single fossil fuel job, but the gas industry will need to evolve. And a lot of the jobs needed in a clean energy economy directly translate to skills people currently have. We need to be deliberate about showing that so it doesn't seem like some sort of magical transition where workers can't see themselves playing a role. We'll need people to repair and build up pipelines to transport carbon and hydrogen. There will be land planning jobs, siting, construction, and maintenance of clean energy facilities and transmission lines. For industries like geothermal and carbon capture, we need people from the oil and gas industry who know how to drill wells, but now for different reasons. So there are a lot of skills that today's energy workforce has that we will need for a net zero economy. I might also say, just respect to what's in the COVID relief package with the energy provisions that just became law. You know, we have extensions on the clean energy tax credits, which were a huge win, especially for the solar and wind industries, and the authorizations to increase investment and innovation, including new demonstration programs for clean energy technologies. And you know, third way, we've been doing a, a separate analysis on the jobs of different demonstration programs and the energy storage, enhanced geothermal, carbon capture, and advanced nuclear demonstration programs 
included in the energy package will together yield an average of 15,600 jobs and a GDP increase of $2.1 billion per year. So investments that help the United States reach zero by 50 can and do also create jobs and help reboot the American economy, and we should be thinking about them together. It's interesting to hear you put some numbers around the job opportunities. Uh, One area, though, that I feel like still needs more action is on job training. You know, we see the opportunity out there, but how do we really get from A to B? You know, how do we create those high quality jobs that people not only have the skills to do, but actually can envision themselves in, as you noted? It feels like we need more nuanced policymaking on that front. And, you know, we haven't really seen that widespread yet. Absolutely. And, you know, historically, we have had issues developing diverse and inclusive workforces. And especially in the energy industry, we have not had a lot of success in creating a diverse workforce. So these policies also need to be focused on not just making sure that we are training the workforce and making sure that we have the skilled workers needed to build this clean energy future, but that we're also providing opportunities for communities of color and making training programs available for people across the country. And making sure that those are targeted and um, available towards people that have historically been left out of the opportunities in the energy sector. Yeah, one of my most memorable interviews of this year I conducted uh, on the Political Climate Podcast in partnership with Third Way. And, you know, we just I happened to be introduced to a woman with an organization called Blacks and Green in the Chicago area. And she really made the point that, like, you know, people don't just want one carve out or a temporary position these communities really want wealth creation opportunities and businesses to really set root in their communities and really own the clean energy transition as much as anyone else and while we've talked about these issues more this year i think than ever before we still have the execution to see happen and so it was interesting to hear her her point there and how even among green groups there's still some more education to be had around how to create those lasting high quality jobs that have good pay and again the wealth creation opportunity in addition to just being green you know really thinking about all the factors at the same time yeah definitely that absolutely matters and you know when we're talking about decarbonizing the economy we're talking about building a lot of clean energy infrastructure there are opportunities in how we decide to build that infrastructure and where we decide to build it and how we involve different communities and workers in order to help increase the amount of equity and opportunities for communities of color rather than how we've historically gone about it, which is cite things without community-based citing practices and going about it in a way that is not uh, intentionally inclusive of communities across the U.S. So let's talk about challenges. What are some of the challenges you foresee in your net zero pathways modeling? You know, we touched on the Princeton research earlier, and in that case, they raised things like land use for renewables under one scenario being uh, a point of friction. The sheer scale of action could also be difficult politically. Are there challenges like that 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 really stood out to you? We have a lot of challenges. I'd like to highlight two that we were kind of getting at uh, earlier. The first being the challenge of building out everything we need to reach net zero. And the second, the challenge of ensuring that this clean energy transition is done right, that it's fair and affordable, creates and protects good paying jobs, and invests in and creates opportunities for vulnerable communities. 
So to the first challenge, we seriously have our work cut out to build everything we need in time to reach net zero by 2050. We're talking about building out an unprecedented amount of clean energy infrastructure. For example, our modeling shows that by 2050, we need more than seven times today's installed capacity for wind and solar. We need to build over 150 million electric vehicles, along with all the supporting charging infrastructure. We also need to rapidly electrify buildings and large parts of the industrial sector. And all this electrification means our grid needs to be modernized to handle at least double today's electricity demand. And if we fail to electrify quickly enough, we'll have to produce more than double the amount of zero carbon fuels we otherwise would, which already would have been an unprecedented amount. We also need to repair and build new pipelines to transport carbon and hydrogen. So we've got a lot to do, and no matter how we decarbonize our economy, we need to build a lot of infrastructure at unprecedented rates. Financing, manufacturing, siting, and constructing all of these projects is no small challenge. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, that seems uh, optimistic in terms of the jobs that could be created. But then again, this all just still has to happen. And, you know, here we've been talking about the idea of a green recovery, building back better. The Biden administration has embraced that concept. But we still have to connect the dots here between, you know, the research that groups like Third Way are working on and then what actually happens in the real world. So to circle back on the policies, how do we go from just these amazing, uh, you know, thought leadership pieces and research uh, initiatives to actually getting Congress and state legislatures to pass something. Do you have any insight on that or what would be your maybe or what would maybe be your message to lawmakers on that front? So from Third Way's perspective, the policies that we need the federal government to implement include both push and pull policies in order to accomplish all of this that we just talked about. So this means spending-based policies that incentivize innovation and the deployment of clean energy and performance standards that ensure the demand for clean energy and guarantee we meet our climate goals. And right now, it's a matter of sequencing and figuring out which policies to implement first. So as we look to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic, Third Way believes that the focus should be on these spending-based policies. So things like investments in infrastructure and innovation, tax credits, grants, and direct subsidies and loans. And these spending-based policies play a crucial role in jumpstarting the transition to net zero by making it a no-brainer for consumers and businesses to invest in clean energy. As we look to recover the economy, these policies are also likely to be more popular as they focus on investing in our workforce and economy. And they can also create a growing coalition of clean energy investors and businesses that will advocate for continued policy support and open the door for more ambitious action down the line. Yes. Yeah, so so in terms of what happens next, as we enter 2021, what do you think we need to look for? You know, Congress just passed this this stimulus bill. Are you looking now to appropriations or what would, the, what would be the next mechanism to advance everything you just mentioned? So absolutely, appropriations is an important next step. We saw in the, the spending bill that was just passed with the energy provisions, a lot of authorizations for different innovation programs, especially at the Department of Energy. But it is through the appropriations process that we can actually guarantee that we're funding these programs to the level that they've been authorized. So 
that's an incredibly important next step in order to invest in the clean energy technologies that we need. And, you know, I don't think that we're looking at one kind of annual big climate and clean energy bill here. We're looking at integrating clean energy provisions into a lot of different legislative vehicles and opportunities to incentivize clean energy technologies and climate solutions. And so, you know, whether we have an, a big infrastructure package or just looking at the surface transportation authorization, there are opportunities to include provisions that advance our climate goals in, in more than one way in 2021. So this is the final episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series. And I'm just wondering, to close it out, Lindsay, what would be your takeaways on what this movement needs to look like, or maybe something you learned in the process of doing your research. Is there a thought you'd leave our listeners with as we head into 2021 about what they should be thinking about with respect to the relief rescue rebuild effort and how to do that in a low carbon way? My takeaway for people as we head into 2021 is that while we have a growing body of research on how the U.S. can decarbonize, this is really just the beginning. And you know, we do have a long way to go and a lot that the federal government needs to do in order to put the United States on the path to zero by 50. And as we especially look ahead to recovery efforts from the COVID-19 pandemic, we should keep in mind the importance of clean energy and really invest in the technologies that are going to help us also address climate change. And we don't want to limit ourselves by not investing in the innovation of different clean energy technologies today and then narrowing the group of technologies that we have to use in the future. You know, we don't know every single technology that we might be using in 2040, 2050. And so we need to innovate those technologies today to make sure that we have a lot of options, a lot of diverse options to use when we need them. And we still have to address the COVID-19 pandemic, everything from distributing vaccines and immediate relief and recovery responses. But it is imperative that we keep climate on the agenda and continue to make progress on investing in clean energy innovation and infrastructure and come to agreement on what more ambitious climate policies we plan to implement down the line, because the threat of climate change is not going away. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. We've loved working with Third Way and appreciate your support on this series. I have learned a lot hosting this. Uh, So it's really been great to speak with you. Thanks so much. And I wish you a happy new year. Thanks for having me, Julia. I had a blast. Mike Gengler is the Wind Energy Coordinator at Iowa Lakes Community College in Estherville, Iowa. After working in the field for several years, Mike now spends his days preparing the next generation of wind techs to join the workforce. Jay Johnson is an assistant professor for the Wind Energy Technician Program at the Lake Region State College in Devils Lake, North Dakota. Jay has worked closely with several students who have transitioned into wind from stalled careers in sectors such as oil and gas, welding, and general labor. I wanted to connect with Mike and Jay to learn more about the clean energy jobs we hear so much about in reports and from politicians, and specifically clean energy jobs in the middle of the United States, where Third Way's upcoming report finds there to be enormous untapped opportunity. I started by asking them to describe where they live and the impact that wind has had on their communities. Well, North Dakota as a whole is a sparsely populated state. I'm not sure the exact number. So if I pick 750,000, that might be uh, pretty close. 
Uh, our college is located in Devil's Lake. It's another small community, but in terms of North Dakota size, it's, uh, I might call it midsize, about 5,000 people-ish maybe. Uh, North Dakota, the, uh, the landscape is, uh, uh, you know, we're up in the northern Great Plains. Being we're talking about wind energy, it, uh, it has uh, fantastic wind energy capability, which is why we're seeing uh, the industry growing at such a pace. There are some hot spots in North Dakota along the Missouri and Pemina Escarpment where the wind, uh, is, uh, the wind energy is incredible. However, uh, it is anywhere you wanted to plant a wind turbine in North Dakota, it would make money. And that's really the key right now. Wind energy makes money for its uh, owners, for the utilities, and for the consumers. The cost of energy is, uh, is plummeting. So everybody's winning, including the people working in the industry. I want to dig into that further, but first, Mike, how would you describe Estherville? My region, um, there's quite a bit of wind around here. Um, we're up on a plateau, so we're one of the best places in Iowa as far as wind goes. That's, that's mainly the reason why our college started it. I'm sure Jay's the same way, but if you go out at night, you get to see the lights blinking everywhere. Um, I enjoy that kind of thing. I was a technician. I traveled the United States. I'm definitely the type of person that likes to see them. I get excited about them. So, Speaking of excitement, how busy are your programs? I understand the wind industry is fairly well established, but would you say there's growing interest among students to join the sector? Is there excitement across your communities? How would you describe that? We saw a, uh, a big bump uh, around uh, 2010, 2011. Uh, and then there was a little bit of, uh, of, of a die-off or a fallback. And I think, uh, I think we're seeing now uh, a, a renewed interest in wind energy. I think uh, it's kind of out in the ether, and, uh, and students are picking up on that. Mike, would you agree with that? And what do you think is attracting more students to the sector? Is it, is it policy-driven? Is it market-driven? Is it just coming from the students themselves because they want to be in this sector? What do you think is driving it? I agree with Jay. He's right. Back in 2010, that's when I graduated. It was like 100 people in the program. Um, now we average anywhere from 30 and 40, which is pretty good numbers. That's kind of where we want to be anyways. But as far as what causes that, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure about Jay, but we're very rural. So we have to attract people to come into our school. Um, like I said, I'm, I live in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we get people from all across the United States. We've got people from other countries. And usually I think what happens is the more it's talked about in the news, obviously how we advertise, things of that nature. Um, but it's also just the everyday people on the ground. Who do they talk to? You know, do they, a lot of our students know people that are in wind. Um, they have relatives in wind. So I think that's where we get a lot of our students from. I'm not sure, you know, if Jay will say the same thing, but that's from my perspective. Yeah, that's interesting to hear about the the familial ties and the real community that's being built up around that. We hear that in coal communities, for instance, generations of coal workers. It sounds like that kind of same community fabric is forming around wind where you live. Is that fair to say? That's pretty fair to say around here. Yep. I think that's that's pretty accurate. Yeah. And I would say that the United States, this country needs electricity and uh, renewables are the uh, the future of electricity generation. The cost is lower than uh, fossil fuel generation. Uh, 
and uh, it comes without the emissions. And then wind, in particular, I just feel is a superior way to generate electricity. And moving forward, this country is going to see a massive increase in uh, electrical demand. I've read upwards of 60, 70% increase in the demand for electricity. Well, that's gotta come from somewhere. Uh, and I would uh, argue that uh, the uh, electrification of everything uh, is going to improve society. Uh, it's going to make our uh, climate cleaner uh, and it's going to reduce the cost and it's going to make uh, our way of life better. I know those are big, uh, those are big ideas, but uh, uh, you know, we're, we are in a change environment. The, the way that we produce electricity uh, in the world is changing underneath our feet right at this moment. And uh, it is a paradigm change. Uh, and uh, a lot of people, uh, in fact, the majority of people, you know, they're not aware of it and they don't need to be aware of it. Right? They're consumers. They want to, uh, they'll pay their power bill and they expect the lights to come on when they hit the switch. Uh, but for people who are uh, in the industry or policymakers or people paying attention to it. Uh, we've seen this trend uh, coming uh, and it's not over the horizon, it's here. It's, it's being developed as we speak and uh, it is an improvement in the way that we have done things in the past. The technology has changed and uh, we're, we're in the deployment stage. We're not in the development stage, we're deploying. I think that's such a key point that there's this antiquated view that there are trade-offs that have to be made when you go green, if you will, or even remove green from it, because I feel like that's even an antiquated framing of this as an environmental movement, when really it's an industrial movement around these massive power plants that just happen to be lower carbon, and you don't have to make trade-offs, that they are serving the same electrical needs that people have across the country. Of course, there are some other changes that come with it around balancing the grid, et cetera, but I think at least wind and solar have proven themselves to be reliable technologies at this point. For sure, and wait till we start deploying big batteries uh, widespread. I mean, that is a game changer. You know, uh, one of the big, uh, one of the big pictures that maybe people don't understand is why, why this technology, renewables, wind, is taking over power generation. Think of it this way. Uh, if, you had, if there is a large coal plant, let's say a thousand megawatt coal plant, you know, that's going to require maybe 500 people to operate that and it's going to require a mine to feed it, you know, a coal mine to feed it, a surface mine probably, another 500 people. Uh, so a thousand megawatt uh, coal plant might take a uh, thousand fifteen hundred people. Well, now consider a uh, wind energy, and let's say that you had uh, five megawatt wind turbines. It might take uh, maybe a hundred at best, a hundred people to operate a thousand megawatt wind turbines. I mean, compare. There's the difference right there, right? Uh, that's why one of the reasons why the cost is so much lower. It just does not take as many people. And it's uh, that uh, along with the uh, environmental improvements. I mean, it's clear that that's where the benefit comes from. So if there's fewer people required, do you think that there's concerns about not there not being enough jobs in this new low carbon economy because we're creating better technologies, more efficient technologies. Is that something that you think is a concern? Yeah, sure. That question that you just raised has been a question that has been asked for uh, 200 years or more as ever since the advent of 
the Industrial Revolution. We've been seeing that playing out decade after decade after decade for centuries now. And uh, this is just ongoing. So uh, both Mike and I are from rural areas, so look at uh, how farming has changed. Uh, there's very few people that are farming right now. Uh, food production is up, the quality of food is up. Uh, people simply move to other segments of the economy. Now we could get into some really crazy futuristic stuff and start talking about uh, uh, do we need as many people working at all anymore? And we get into uh, basic, uh, basic income, uh, but you know, I'll leave that for uh, wiser <laughs> economics. No, it's, it is a fair point. Um, yeah. Well, we are talking here as we're hopefully coming out of a global pandemic. We're speaking at the end of December 2020. Vaccines are on the horizon. Hopefully, you know, we will achieve herd immunity at some point soon. But the economy still has a lot of recovery to do as well. And so maybe, Mike, in this particular moment, do you see the job opportunities in wind serving the needs of your community? Is that going to be a bit of a, the economic driver that you think your community needs right now? For my particular community, I wouldn't say there is just because, you know, most of the sites already have their full commission of people already working there. Now, I'll tell my students that, you know, you got to go where the work is. So if you're working in wind and you want to work in your hometown, that's probably not going to happen unless your hometown has a wind park and they have openings. So my guys right up front know that, you know, the dream of working in their hometown is probably not going to be the thing. And they know that right up front. Um, I grew up in Ohio. I didn't grow up in Iowa. So I moved across the country to do this. I, I was a traveling technician for years. So meeting the needs of your community, if you want to work in wind, but you don't mind traveling, you can definitely do that. So if, if people get out of the aspect of, you know, I live there, but I have to work there, doesn't mean you have to do that. I lived in Ohio, but I worked all over the United States. I've been to Nicaragua. I've been to Germany. So, you know, there's, there's that trade-off, you know, it might not meet, meet the needs of the community in that area, but you can still have jobs. You can still go all over the United States. You can still bring money back to your community. Got it. Jay, would you say that the wind industry has brought income to your community? There is a discussion around you know, the taxes that they pay in addition to the jobs, that there's a broader, you know, development, economic, you know, development that happens when wind comes to town. Has, have you seen that reflected where you work? Most certainly. Uh, if I can just throw out a couple numbers. Uh, I've read that uh, North Dakota has seen, I think it's uh, $6 billion of investment in, in wind energy. There's about $22 million a year paid to uh, landowners to, to put up these sites on their property. And of course that goes to uh, primarily to farmers. But I would also say, I'm just looking at a, looking across North Dakota, uh, you know, with all the challenges in our uh, oil and gas industry and the pressure being put on our coal sites because they can't compete in terms of cost anymore. I look across North Dakota and I see these wind sites being built, you know, that uh, have investments of 300 to $500 million. And that's for a medium sized site, not some of these big monster sites that can be built, you know, a, you know, a thousand megawatt sites uh, that cost in the billions. But uh, there is nothing happening, at least in North Dakota, that comes even close to the economic investment that wind is uh, putting up in the state. I mean, it's staggering when you look at uh, 
at this investment. And it's, uh, it's largely happening underneath the radar. However, I am certain uh, public policymakers are keenly aware of where the investment is coming from. Yeah, on the public policymaker side, I guess, Mike, what do you think that you'd want to say to policymakers about the needs uh, to grow wind, just not just in your community, but broadly, from what you understand about the industry? Are there certain policies you'd want to see? Are there worker training programs? Is it broader investments in the utility grids and interconnection? If you had the ear of policymakers, starting with Mike, and then I'll go to Jay, uh, what would you say to them? I'll be a little selfish. Uh <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an instructor. I really believe in the education side of things. Um, I worked out in the field. I saw the difference between, you know, the people that really knew what they were doing and then the people that just had a job. Um, I think a lot of people think of wind as just a job, but for most people that look at wind, it's a career. It's something you can build off of, um, but you need that education. You need somewhere to start. So you know, if you want to get into wind and just have that job, you can do that. But if you want that career, you need that education. And that's what the wind industry needs. We need, we need people seeking careers and we need the government to, you know, back the individuals that want those careers in wind. And then the colleges like mine and Jay's and all the other colleges that are promoting that point of view, um, you know, Give us, give us the money we need, give us the training that we need, the facilities that we need to make that happen. Hmm. Jay, what would you say? I would concur uh, with Mike, uh, it was well said. Uh, you can get hired in wind uh, uh, without any, without a college, wind college uh, degree or a certificate. However, uh, uh, it makes it hard to advance. And the way Mike said it to, uh, to advance in a career uh, is exactly the point. I've seen people who work in wind and they lack the, the depth of understanding of the machines and the operations that you can learn uh, by going through a college program. And if I could speak to policymakers, I would say the time is now, right now, to provide financial support for people who want to get into this industry. And that support is going to drive this social change that we're seeing from renewables. You need people on the ground who know what they're doing to operate uh, this equipment. And, uh, uh, and college, college ought to be less expensive than it is. It is a burden. And uh, we need to remove that burden and, uh, and make it easier, not harder, for people to get into this field. Just my thoughts. I guess my last question is, you know, as we go forward, we actually are speaking as Congress on a bipartisan basis is passing some stimulus. So that's good in the eyes of many that there's finally some bipartisan action, including some climate and energy measures. Uh, but, you know, people want to see more action like that, I think, going forward to help reboot the economy. When it comes to the politics of this, where you live, is wind even considered a political issue one way or the other, or is it just an economic issue at this point? Uh, Mike and then Jay. I'd say being really rural around here, it's more of an economic thing. Um, now, you can definitely get into heated argument about politics around here. I think that you could say that anywhere. Everybody has their own opinion about clean energy and what, you know, what that needs to be as far as politics goes. But being such a rural area, I think it's more an economic driver here than it would be somewhere else. 
right? So that kind of strips away the politics a bit. Yeah, it's just around here, it's more of the economic thing. Yeah. Uh, I think people who uh, have been educated on the topic realize this is nothing but pure uh, engineering and economics. The engineering is driving uh, a uh, lower cost electricity for consumers. And when consumers realize it, they're supportive. Uh, for just one obvious example is a uh, company called XL Energy, uh, maybe a decade ago was charging customers, giving customers an opportunity to pay a premium for uh, renewable energy. And, uh, and tens of thousands of their customers uh, said, yes, I wanna do that. And, uh, and now just maybe within the last month, uh, XL Energy is rebating those same people because the cost of renewable energy has dropped. It was, it was in a way, uh, a bank account for those people. Of course, they didn't know it at the time, but uh, that's the engineering or the technological change. And uh, political leaders or policymakers uh, ought to be educating people uh, and telling them, look, this is, uh, this is not political. Uh, this is just a technological change. And, uh, and there are some painful moments coming with that. I mean, uh, we can talk about uh, people working in the legacy uh, generation industries. Uh, and uh, no doubt uh, it is hard for them uh, because uh, their, uh, their livelihoods are going away. Coal plants are going away. Uh, that is not a debate anymore, but somebody needs to uh, help those people out. And that's the role of policymakers, I believe. Yeah. So it's not exactly a one for one, not every, you know, fossil fuel job will now be in wind. But I guess, Jay, just to conclude here, broadly, do you think that wind and the clean energy economy writ large, everything from homes to businesses beyond just the big projects out in fields, are you hopeful that that will help the economy in the U.S. reboot coming out of the pandemic, but also continue to grow in the long term? Do you see that as a not just a sector, but a real driving sector for the U.S. going forward? I absolutely do. If uh, if this, if our economy, if our economic, if our policy leaders took a look and said, uh, we can use renewable energy and the electrification of everything, to use that phrase, as a way to drive a reboot of our economy, then that would be one of the major policy legs that could get our uh, economy not just up and running, but drive it into the future. I mean, look, there are other countries out there. China is the one that we need to look about and look at. Uh, people uh, uh, think China is this uh, this uh, dirty power generation country. Uh, they may have a lot of coal plants, but we need to pay attention. They are a huge driver in renewables, and we are competing. Uh, as they develop renewables, they're learning how to build wind turbines better. They're learning how to operate wind turbines better, uh, and. Uh, and we need to get in the game. That is the future of power generation. And uh, we would benefit from a unified uh, national energy policy that would drive renewables forward. Jay Johnson and Mike Gengler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me about this. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Jay. And there you have it, the final episode in our Relief Rescue Rebuild series. Thank you, Third Way, for your support. This content and these conversations would not have made it into the world otherwise. 
Also, thank you to AY Music, who wrote our awesome theme song. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Wishing you all a safe and happy start to the new year. For now, I'm Julia Piper, signing off. <laughs>